Before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, you created us as whole people. And you want us to be healthy even here on earth. But more importantly, you want us to be spiritually healthy so that we can join you and live forever in a, in a place where sin and suffering and disease do not control. We ask for a better picture of what that means and help us understand a little bit more about our church history this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today, today we're going to be talking about the health message. And this is a very broad topic. We probably should have made this into two sections, but uh, let me tell you quickly what we're going to do. We're first going to cover the development of the health message. All right, some of the, the visions that Ellen White received that helped to, to shape the unique Adventist understanding of health. We're also going to talk about what happened with Kellogg in the late 1800s. And so we're going to dive right in, okay? But before we begin, I want to begin with the text. Do we have our mic? And uh, it's going to be found in, the thir- uh, in 3 John, the second verse. You may be familiar with this text. I think it adequately describes the Adventist view of health. Could someone read that? Just raise your hand, and uh, you'll get the mic. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So first of all, we see here John speaking under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He is praying and, and hoping that each person will be will prosper and be in health, right? But what is health linked intimately with? The soul. Our spiritual well-being, and the, there's a connection there that is unique to, to Adventists in terms of the understanding of that connection. And so we're going to be talking about that at first. But before we talk about how this happened within the church... I want to tell you or talk to you about what medicine was like in the old days. Now, many of you are here at Loma Linda. Perhaps you're a medical professional or you know medical professionals. You're definitely in an environment where there's several major hospitals nearby, etc. You may take for granted the medical knowledge that we have today. But back in the 1800s, it was a different story. In fact, I would dare say that back in those days, you were better off not going to the doctor. The doctor actually made you worse. The doctor could kill you. And so how many of you can think of some of the ways that they tried to cure people in the 1800s? Yes. They bled them. Bloodletting was supposed to help cure and uh, everyone knows the story of George Washington as he was dying there. They bled him three times, t- 
trying to, to give him the best medical care that was available at that time. Of course, he didn't survive. He actually begged them to, yeah, for, for pneumonia. He, he finally begged them just to let him die in peace. Um, yes. Okay, so surgically they were very crude and they drilled. In fact, I think chloroform was, was uh, found during this time. So before that they didn't have, even have chloroform. One more. Mercury. Okay, so l- let me go through some of the lists and that's exactly right. Uh, bloodletting was very popular and uh, also what they called calomel, which was mercury, uh, a poison. They would actually use a lot of metals, arsenic, antimony. These different kinds of of metals were supposed to purge the system of whatever it was that was affecting them. And then then they would also use a lot of narcotics. Opium was a a big... uh, drug that they, that they used all the time, as well as, of course, alcohol and tobacco, all were used therapeutically, supposedly. The, the operating phrase at that time was, bleed them, purge them, and drug them. And so this is the, the times that the Advent movement began in. In fact, here's an example taken from the Family Medicine Chest Dispensatory Uh, published in 1835. A doctor wrote, speaking of smoking cigars uh, therapeutically, he said that the patient should frequently draw in the breath freely so that the internal surface of the air vessels may be exposed to the action of the vapor. So breathe deeply as, as you smoke your cigar and that will help you get better. Back in those days, of course, there was no American Medical Association. There was really no governing body that, that, that watched over health care. Uh, there was no evidence-based medicine. No studies were done to see what was right. Uh, and so, in fact, another thing to mention is that medical school was very short at that time. Nowadays, after your bachelor's degree, you get four years of medical education and then you do another residency for three to five years. And then, depending on it, whether you specialize, you can go on longer than that. Back in those days, you could spend a few months in medical school. Courses were as short as, as about four months or so. And uh, then that was just book learning. And then, if you wanted to, you could do an apprenticeship. But uh, uh, medical knowledge was very short. There were only seven classes you needed to take. Four months uh, or, or maybe four months, you know, or, or eight months, depending on, uh, you take two years or so. But it was uh, very, very limited. Now, during this time, there began to be a movement in health reform. This was not in the Adventist church per se. It started happening just because of the sorry state of medicine in those days. And so <clears throat> a couple of names I wanted to mention. Uh, in 1858, there was a doctor by the name of Dr. James Jackson. And he and his adopted daughter, who was also a doctor, Dr. Harriet Austin, they started a, what they called a water cure establishment in Dansville, New York. And they espoused natural remedies, especially, of course, water cure, which was another name for hydrotherapy in those days, a very cutting-edge new treatment. Another person was Dr. Sylvester Graham, and he was a proponent of dietary reform and especially vegetarianism, and he, 
used uh, a lot of unrefined whole wheat flour. In fact, you may, you may uh, recognize the name. He was the one that, that developed graham bread, which we know nowadays as what? Graham crackers. Probably not exactly the same thing as he de- what he developed, but uh, uh, he was the one that started all of that. Now, in the Adventist church, <clears throat> shortly after, you know, in the 1840s, 18, to the 1860s or so, Adventists were really studying out the present truth doctrines that we talked about a couple Sabbaths ago. And so they were really too busy studying all these new truths to worry about health. And of course, God had his timing. God doesn't throw everything on us at once. Uh, that would be overwhelming. But he led them as, as they were ready. And so once all of these different uh, uh, major doctrines, such as the sanctuary and the spirit of prophecy and the Sabbath had been discovered, then the church was ready to hear about health reform. Now, most Adventist pioneers of that time were not very healthy. Uh, James White is a good example of that. But more than that, uh, most of them ate meat, many ate pork. I mean, they had no idea uh, what health meant at that time. Except for one, Joseph Bates. He was probably one of the first health reformers in the church. And it actually started before he joined the Adventist church. Uh, time limits me. I can't give you his whole story. But he gave up uh, alcohol and tobacco even before he became an Adventist. During his Millerite years, he gave up then tea and coffee. And eventually he gave up meat and rich foods. And he began to drink only water as a beverage. And he continued that for the rest of his life. And he was one of the healthiest pioneers, actually. Uh, and probably mostly because of the lifestyle changes that he made early, earlier in his life. And he was the one that got the Sabbath truth. That's right. Now, in the autumn of 1848, Ellen White had a vision. And this vision, uh, she found that, or she was told that tobacco, tea, and coffee were harmful. This was, not a, a, one, this was not her major vision. That was in 1863. We'll get to that in a moment. But this uh, was beginning to unfold some light about how they could live healthier lives. In the winter of 1854, Ellen White had another vision. This time it was about cleanliness. And it was about a simple, wholesome diet. Still, many of these things were not fully being implemented within the church. Tobacco, for a while, was still tolerated, although they began to speak more about it, etc. But it was in June of 1863 that Ellen White had her major, div- uh, major vision on health. And this was to have a major, major impact on, the, on church work for, forever, even until now. Now, this happened about two weeks after a general, the general conference session where the church reorganized, all right? They had, they had adjusted their organizational structure, and uh, James White had been very instrumental in, in some of these things, and he was overworked. Of course, you know, his health was bad, and he was uh, feeble and stressed out. And around this time, he and his wife... Ellen White were visiting the Hilliard family 
in uh, Otsego, Michigan. And Ellen White was invited to lead the prayer session for their family worship. During this prayer session, she was praying, and she moved over, and she began, she laid her hand on, on James White, and she began to pray for him especially. And around that time, she was taken off into vision. And she had been praying, of course, for his health. <clears throat> Here is an eyewitness account from Mrs. Martha Ambadon about what happened. She says, Sister White was asked to lead in prayer at family worship. She did so in a most wonderful manner. Elder White was kneeling a short distance from her. While praying, she moved over to him and laying her hand on his shoulder, continued praying for him until she was taken off in vision. She was in vision about 45 minutes. During this vision, she was shown primarily the relationship between health and holiness. The contribution that the physical, the physical well-being can have on spiritual well-being. That's a pretty broad way of, of summarizing it. You can actually read the uh, principles of the vision that she was taught. Uh, it's found in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 4, pages 120 to 151. That's, that's really the, the section of Spiritual Gifts where she lays out the framework that she received in that vision. Basically, if I can describe it to you, have you all heard of New Start? All right, New Start. Of course, New Start, the acronym, came about a long time after. Uh, it was developed a long time after Ellen White passed away. But it's, it, it nicely encapsulates the, the various aspects of, of health. And so let's quickly mention them. N stands for nutrition. E stands for exercise. W, water. S, sunlight. T, temperance, A, air, R, rest, and the last T is trust, trust in God. And so these all, things are all covered when she wrote out this, this vision. Uh, she also wrote a little bit about also the role of drugs and how, especially in those days, the kind of drugs that they used, they were not helpful, were they? And so she, she wrote that we should avoid those because they weren't helpful. Here's a selection from Spiritual Gifts that I'll read to you <clears throat> to give you an idea of what she was saying. She wrote, The body, which God calls his temple, should be preserved in as healthy a condition as possible. Many act as though they had a right to treat their own bodies as they please. They do not realize that God has claims upon them. They are required to glorify him in their bodies and spirits which are his. While they give themselves up to the gratification of unhealthy appetites and thus bring disease upon themselves, they cannot render to God acceptable service. It is a sacred duty which God has enjoined upon reasonable beings formed in his image to keep that image in as perfect a state as possible. Those who bring disease upon themselves by self-gratification have not healthy minds and bodies. They cannot weigh the evidences of truth and comprehend the requirements of God. And I would, I would say today that that last sentence is probably the crux of what she, was, uh, what she was shown. When we are not healthy, when our appetites, our natural human appetites are running rampant, then we are, our minds are clouded. We're not able to see clearly spiritual things. 
because the Holy Spirit is not dwelling with us because, uh, after all, we are following our carnal appetites and, and passions rather than uh, letting the Holy Spirit help us to, to uh, live a life of victory and holiness. And so that is kind of the message that, uh, that Ellen White received. Along with this, she also received instruction personally for herself and for James White. And so in a way, the vision that Ellen White received while she was praying for her husband, the, the vision she received was an answer to her prayer. It gave specific instruction for her and James White about overwork, about being burden bearers and taking on too much, etc. Other principles developed later on. We don't have time to cover all of them. There are many books that have been written that Ellen White has written that shed a lot of light. And uh, you probably are familiar with them. And you can read them if you want to learn more. What are some of the books that Ellen White has written on health? Can you think of some? Okay, Councils on Health. Ministry of Healing, a very important one. Medical Ministry. Temperance. Councils on Diets and Foods. And Loma Linda Messages are some. Uh, of course, there are excerpts in other compilations and other books as well. But those are ones that you will want to consider if you want to study this further. I mentioned a couple other things, though, that are important and will be important to our discussion later. <clears throat> she talked about the medical ministry as something called the right arm. Have you heard of that before? Let me read you a couple quotes to help you understand what that means. Here's one in volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 229, that I think gives a clear idea of what it is. She says, Every medical practitioner may, through faith in Christ, have in his possession a cure of the highest value. What is that? A remedy for the sin-sick soul. The physician who is converted and sanctified through the truth is registered in heaven as a laborer together with God, a follower of Jesus Christ. Through the sanctification of the truth, God gives to physicians and nurses wisdom and skill in treating the sick, and this work is opening the fast-closed door to many hearts. Men and women are led to understand the truth, which is needed to save the soul as well as the body. This is an element that gives character to the work for this time. The medical missionary work is as the what? Right arm to the third angel's message, which must be proclaimed to a fallen world. She also said that the medical missionary work was the gospel in practice. All right, putting into practice the gospel, salvation. <clears throat> she also wrote this in Review and Herald, June 20, 1899. The Lord desires his church to be a perfect body, not all arms, not all body without arms, but body and arms together, and every member working as a part of the one great whole. As the right arm is connected with the body, so the health reform and medical missionary work is connected with the third angel's message and is to work efficiently as the right arm for the defense of the body of truth. So that is the connection that the medical missionary work was to have with the gospel work, the ministerial work. She also noted that these should be intimately connected. And let me read one quote from uh, Manuscript Releases, Volume 5, pages 134 and 135. She says, Medical missionary work is to be closely connected with the ministry of the Word. 
bound up with the third angel's message, the last message of mercy and warning to be given to a guilty world. The work of health reform is to be bound up with the gospel. These cannot be separated, for God has united them. When these parts of the work are carried forward on correct lines, the third angel's message will be given in accordance with God's purpose. Do you want the third angel's message to be given in accordance with God's purpose? Then uh, we're going to need to learn what the message was. <clears throat> now, if I ask you, we're going to move into our next section, and that is uh, talk about a very famous figure in the health work. His name was John Harvey Kellogg. And uh, if I asked you who invented cornflakes, could you tell me? Who was it? John Harvey Kellogg. His brother was the one that, that commercialized it and, and turned it into a business. But he was the one that, that first invented that. He was a tremendous man, inventor. If I asked you who in, invented granola, could you tell me? It was Kellogg. And as was mentioned just now, if I asked you who invented peanut butter, did you know that John Harvey Kellogg was the one that invented peanut butter? So think about that every time you spread some on your toast. And so here's a man who is, who is described as being bright and energetic. He had tremendous energy. He was very creative, invented many, many devices and different, uh, different uh, food products and all these different things, constantly moving and working. He was a tremendous, he was a writer. He could just write uh, um, for, for long periods of time. And, of course, he was a physician. He was trained at uh, one of the top medical schools at the time in America, uh, Bellevue Hospital Medical Center. But he was also could be headstrong. And he was, at times, uh, jealous and ambitious and he could be very critical of people who did not agree with his ideas. And so we had this package together. He worked very hard. He was a workaholic and uh, could outwork pretty much anyone out there and outtalk many people as well. Well, early in his life, we can't talk about everything, but early in his life, he, we talked about him going to Bellevue Medical College. He graduated in 1875. He was actually partially supported uh, by the Whites. They had grown very fond of him. Uh, they knew uh, the family, and they sponsored him and others to go to medical school. They wanted to promote uh, Adventist doctors. And so John Harvey Kellogg went to school partly backed by the Whites. After he graduated from medical school and completed his training, he became editor of The Health Reformer. It was a magazine that was started to promote these uh, hygienic reform principles. And he was actually asked to become the medical director of the Western Health uh, Reform Institute. It was called at that time. It was the Adventist Institute that they had. Interestingly enough, he actually did not want the post. He was quite young at the time. He was only 23 years old. And he actually said no several times and had to be persuaded to take it. 
And when he finally did, he accepted for one year. That was it. Of course, when he accepted, he didn't realize that that one year would stretch into 67 continuous year, years of leadership and that many things, many unforgettable things would happen during that time. It's also interesting to note that when Kellogg joined the uh, Health Reform Institute at that time, there were 20 patients. And the outgoing medical director took six of those patients with him. They wanted to stay with their doctor, you know, continuity of care. And there were two, two patients that looked at this 23-year-old young man, and they just left. They just packed their bags and left. They uh, did not have confidence in such a, a young physician. But that did not dissuade uh, John Harvey Kellogg. And he started working very hard to promote the Institute and build it up. He changed the name uh, shortly after that to Battle Creek Sanitarium. And uh, eventually it was nicknamed The Sand as his reputation grew. He constructed a state-of-the-art building in 1878. And basically, Battle Creek Sanitarium began to be known for the true healing that, that they had there. Many other hospitals, they were practicing this kind of uh, half medicine, half folk, uh, you know, drug type of potion type of thing, you know. And so this, this institute, the, the Western Reform, uh, Health Reform Institute, was beginning to be known for true healing practices. It became what you could consider the Mayo Clinic of its day. Uh, uh, what we might think of today as the Mayo Clinic or Scripps or some kind of leading, cutting-edge medical center. Many, many famous people eventually came to come to this place, this Battle Creek Sanitarium, for treatment. And you might be uh, familiar with some of the names if I read you some of them. Have you heard of Amelia Earhart before? J.C. Penney? Mary Todd Lincoln? Sojourner Truth? And several presidents, actually. Uh, Warren Harding and Taft. Uh, Henry Ford came there, as well as John D. Rockefeller. Montgomery Ward. And another famous inventor, Thomas Edison, also came to Battle Creek. So that gives you an idea of the the level that Battle Creek Sanitarium was known. People were coming from all over the United States as well as abroad. And so it was really uh, a cutting edge institution at that time. Truly the head and not the tail. John, John Harvey Kellogg was asked one time how he was able to stay so far ahead of everyone else in the medical field. And I have to, to read this to you because I think it's very important to know where he got his inspiration from. And uh, I'm actually, uh, this is, I think is from Dr. Paulson, but uh, I found it in the book Hindsight. And Dr. Paulson is, says here, he said, in other words, Kellogg said, when a new thing is brought out in the medical world, he knew from his knowledge of the spirit of prophecy whether it belonged in our system or not. If it did, he instantly adopted it and advertised it while the rest of the doctors were slowly feeling their way. And when they finally adopted it, he had five years to start of them. On the other hand, when the medical profession were swept off their feet by some new fad, 
If it did not fit the light we had received, he simply did not touch it. And when the doctors finally discovered their mistake, they wondered how it came that Dr. Kellogg did not get caught. So here, from his reliance on the spirit of prophecy and the principles that Ellen White had been shown, he was able to stay ahead of the medical profession. Now, while the Battle Creek Sanitarium was, was flourishing, all was not well in Battle Creek. And thus begins a long and drawn-out saga. We're going to just cover some highlights and some of the reasons why Battle Creek Sanitarium and especially Kellogg, uh, why things did not go so well later on. Medical missionary work was supposed to be the right arm of the, of the Third Angel's message, right? We read that, right? But by this time, medical missionary work was, was, had grown so large that it was almost dominating the, the, the church. Do you know what I mean? It was the, one of the most famous parts of the church, but uh, it was almost becoming the body. <clears throat> and Kellogg's medical work was beginning to take a life of its own. So one of these aspects that we can trace back and look at is that there began to be a, a split or a division between doctors and ministers. This is very important because I believe that this divide has not fully been resolved and that if doctors and ministers were to begin to work together like they used to during the Battle Creek sanitarium years or, or even before, that, that things could be a lot different. Here's some examples. Kellogg began to be frustrated by the example that the ministers uh, gave to the, the lay people. And uh, particularly, the ministers were slow to, to adopt vegetarianism. Uh, they, they refused to ban you know, meat at camp, the camp meeting cafeterias. And when they would co even come to the sanitarium, they would, when everyone else was eating vegetarian food, they would order meat, of all things, the ministers. And so this frustrated Kellogg to no end. And he began to feel that as a physician, a highly trained physician, that he was superior to many of those ministers. Many of the ministers he felt were, were inferior. Uh, they were not as well educated. And how could they, as the church, try to control him, who knew so much more? And doctors were so well trained. Why couldn't they be in charge of the work that they were doing? He, be, he began to think this way. He also, began, he also started his own medical school and began to recruit some of the best and the brightest young people to come to medical school to the point where the ministers felt that they, uh, all the best and brightest were now going into medicine and that, they, they were, that there weren't enough that were going into the ministry. Uh, if you go back and read kind of what Ellen White has to say on this, she sees both aspects, really. She really encourages uh, our, some of our brightest to go into the ministry. We need ministers uh, who are true thinkers and, and doers. And, and, but at the same time, she also understood the need for, for good Seventh-day Adventist physicians who understood the unique Adventist perspective on health. 
Unfortunately, though, there was this competition now that had started between Kellogg, his recruiting, and ministers recruiting for, for uh, ministerial candidates. <clears throat> Another part of this had to do with Kellogg's view on the gospel. His view of the gospel was very much a humanitarian viewpoint. And he, he was all about being, uh, playing the good Samaritan role in the world. But uh, he took it a little far. When the sanitarium's charter, the first sanitarium's charter expired in 1897, he engineered the new charter and required me members to sign a statement making the work of the sanitarium, quote, undenominational, unsectarian, humanitarian, and phil uh, philanthropic in nature. And so here began a slow change, a slow slide into what he called undenominationalism. All right? In fact, a little bit later, he actually said that the sanitarium could not be used for the purpose of presenting anything that is peculiarly Seventh-day Adventist in doctrine, and that membership in his governing association was op as open to a Catholic as to a Seventh-day Adventist. So this is another thing that began to happen. I wish I could, I could say more on this topic. We're running out of time. But let's just say that when he started his medical college, he also said that it was not a sectarian school and that it, would be, it wasn't to be SDA or Methodist or Baptist or anything and that it was just there to be a Christian medical school and train Christian missionaries. And uh, Ellen White wrote and rebuked that idea. And that is found, if you want to read it, in Volume 8 of the Testimonies, pages 155 to 156. Another thing that happened with Kellogg is that he began to reject the spirit of prophecy. We don't have time to go into this, but even though the Whites had always been close to Kellogg and they had actually helped sponsor him through medical school, uh, when Ellen White wrote certain testimonies to him that didn't agree with his viewpoint, he began to cast doubt on, on those as, uh, as not inspired. And finally, there was the whole pantheism issue. And pantheism is the belief, especially the way that Kellogg believed. It was just that you can find God in everything, in nature. And not just in animate objects, but inanimate objects. The air we breathe, of course the food that we eat and the water we drink, it's all, he called, uh, it was all had the divine presence. And so as we partook of those things into our body, that's how God came into us. And really that's how we received righteousness. That was kind of what he was trying to say. And of course, that is, that is uh, not correct. And Ellen White wrote against that theory. Uh, even A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner that we talked about last week, they were drawn in by this theory. And they began to, to uh, preach this as well. Well, in February 18, 1902, the sanitarium, the hospital, they burned down. And so Kellogg immediately began to make plans to rebuild. But in order to, to finance that, he wrote a book called The Living Temple. And the, pro the proceeds from the sale of that book were to go to rebuild the sanitarium and to pay off the old debts of other sanitariums. And so he made arrangements for 500,000 copies of this book to be printed and sold through the church. This is similar to what Ellen White did with Christ's Object Lessons. And, uh, but the General Conference Committee took an in-depth look at, at this book and they saw the seeds of pantheism in the book and they declined to, to print it, which I believe was the right decision. And, but anyway, Kellogg didn't agree, and he ordered 5,000 copies to be printed anyway. 
uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, the Review and Herald actually burned down later that year uh, before they could print his book, The Living Temple. By this time, <clears throat> tensions between Kellogg and the church had deteriorated. It was very tense. Uh, Ellen White tried many times to reconcile the two and uh, to no avail. There would be a temporary truce, but then things would, would fall apart again. And finally, uh, in 1907, the Battle Creek SDA Church formally dropped Dr. Kellogg from membership. By that time, he had not been coming to church regularly, and uh, they, had, they went and talked with him for, like, for seven hours to see uh, where he was at, and he didn't even come to the, to the proceedings when his membership was dropped. Fourteen months after that, Kellogg exercised a clause in the charter of the Battle Creek Sanitarium that allowed him this is a little-known clause that he had put in earlier in 1897 that allowed him to drop people uh, who, uh, uh, who opposed him. And so this included A.G. Daniels and W.C. White, Willie White, and many other Adventist ministers. And he was able to purge the Battle Creek Sanitarium from most of the Seventh-day Adventist influences that were there. And so pretty much the Battle Creek Sanitarium became a non-Adventist institution from that time on. That's a short history of what happened with Kellogg. Uh, we, we, could, we could spend a whole other hour talking about this. Let me just conclude by saying this. I believe, and I believe Ellen White also believed, that one of the greatest contributions of the SDA church to the world was the medical missionary work. And uh, she included it with present truth. And basically this was teaching people about healthy living and really more than that, teaching them how a healthy body can help them to have a better spirituality. And it's the right arm of the third angel's message because it prepares God's people and the world for Christ's soon coming. And for, for a brief time in the 1800s, we covered how the Battle Creek Sanitarium and the work that Kellogg did really uh, brought Adventist, the Adventist health message to the forefront of the world and really kind of was, uh, was cutting edge for that time. However, because one man tried to control the work, because of personality conflicts and, and, and theological controversy as well. Very similar to last week, right? We talked about 1888. You see a recurring theme here about some of the things that divide us, that prevent us from coming together and doing God's work. Also, the, the spirit of prophecy was slandered, and these are all things that were very similar to what happened in 1888. Ultimately, the medical missionary work did not fulfill its potential, and many souls were lost. You know, A.T. Jones lost his salvation. E.J. Wagner, Kellogg, many of these people left the faith because of uh, these, uh, these things that happened. But I always want to end on a very positive note, and that is that we live in a new generation, don't we? We live in a different time of Earth's history, and we have a new opportunity to pick up where Kellogg and others left off and to really return the Adventist health message to the forefront of what it should be and what it will be. We have to find a way for ministers and doctors to work together. We have to find a way to, uh, to encourage our medical institutions to restore the original purpose that God intended to them. And, and we can do this by doing what actually Kellogg used to call spreading the gospel of health. And so especially those of you who are in health professions or thinking about the health professions. And all of us really can be health 
reformers, can't we? Let's take this to heart. We know that the medical missionary work is part of that third angel's message. Let's embrace it, and let's inaugurate a new day and a new era in God's work and finish what began in 1863 in that that famous, famous vision. Will you commit to that with me this morning? Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for caring and loving us enough to give us a message that would help us to have abundant life here on this earth, but more importantly, to be able to enjoy that life forever in heaven with you. May we understand this message, study it, and share it with all those that we come in contact with is our fervent prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.